All right, so we are in a series in Romans, the deep end of the theological pool. The plot thickens today. After last week, as I was thinking about the questions that were being asked, and then people who came up to me afterwards, I realized that there is a misunderstanding about when we're talking about when God, we're talking about election. What I called last week the mystery of God's mercy, the mystery of mercy. There are people who are confusing doctrines, and it makes sense because it all is kind of weird. But predestination and is, is different than like a doctrine of what's called providence. And some of the practical questions that were being asked were assuming that the doctrine of election that God chooses goes beyond the category of salvation. So when we're talking about election and God choosing, this is specifically about who is saved, not what job you do or do you do this or do you make this decision, do you buy this house? And so there are different categories theologically that encompass what we're talking about. So I want to start by reading you excerpts of an article that talks about this, this doctrine called providence. Now this, now, this may cause more confusion. It may cause more questions than I want it to be, but I want to make sure you understand that providence is different than election and predestination. I just want to make sure that we understand this. So I'm just going to read a couple excerpts of this, and then we're going to look in to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. But I want to read just a, a snippet of an article on the doctrine called providence is to describe how God works in light of his foreknowledge, his predestination, his choosing. All right? So the definition that this author gives of providence is this. The providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. All right, so it's God continuing to uphold, guide, and care for his creation. So God is essentially, he didn't just create the earth, step back, and is just watching to see what happened with, with the best popcorn ever. Right, he's, he's a part of caring for and guiding his creation. So here's what this author says. He says this. God's providence is the working of his power to uphold God and care for his creation. Some theologians have described this as a continual creation as opposed to the notion that God created the world and then stepped back from it. The providence of God leaves no room for chance or competition between God and another power. God as the primary cause causes everything, but this does not remove the ability of creatures to cause or act. Rather, God grants all creatures their power to act as causes in the world. The providence of God is different than predestination in that the latter focuses particularly on the salvation of the elect. While providence is general. We cannot know all of the particularities of God's providential plan. Only God knows how all things will work together. Finally, Christian prayer should be expressions of the aspiration 
of Christ's followers made in the presence of God rather than lists of requests. So what he's trying to do is help you understand that that just because God knows everything and that God is a, that our prayers aren't necessarily a bunch of what we want, but how we want to see God's glory working out in the world. So when you look at how Jesus taught us to pray, Jesus didn't have a bunch of lists and desires. It was very simple because he said, look, the father already knows what you need before you ask it. So Jesus taught us to pray in very good categories. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. You will be done. Give us our daily bread. You know, forgive us our debts, remove us from the evil one, and so forth. It wasn't, can I have this, can I have that, can I have this, can I have that. Now, it's not saying we can't pray those things. But sometimes we think we're praying for things that are outside of what God, how God taught us to pray. Because what he taught us to pray are the aspirations of God for us in society. Doesn't mean we don't have our own desires. So that, that's what he's getting at. He later makes a distinction between providence and chance. And here's what he says. One clear corollary of this meticulous providence. I love how these do. They just can't keep it simple, right? It's always been. One clear corollary of this meticulous providence is the banishment from our thinking of lucky events or actions as the oper operation of fortune. There is no source of events, however surprising and capricious they may be to us, than the will of the almighty God who works all things together according to the counsel of his will. James cautions us not to take for granted events that at present seem subject to our own will. Even Satan and other fallen angels are subject to the divine will of God. Christian theology is monistic, not dualistic. It was a surprise to Joseph's brothers to see the caravan of the Midianites appear, and equally surprising that rather than murdering him, they sold Joseph to them on their journey to Egypt. But as they were to discover, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So he's describing how even though they were, they, the, Joseph's brothers acted on their own accord, God and his providence worked that out for his good. For what appeared like Joseph is being sold into slavery because his brothers are jealous. And God's providential plan was to put Joseph in place to save many millions of people. And this is where sometimes the rubber meets the road for us because sometimes we don't like the providential plan God has. But it's still God's providence. This is an election. Election is about who is saved. Providence is about how things turn out. I'm going to talk about this category of providence and predestination. Now he's distinguishing the two here. Providence is God generally working his, his will to guide and care for his creation. And predestination is to choose who belongs to him in salvation. He says, as providence is to be distinguished from predestination, predestination has to do with salvation. It is the way that God destines the elect, working in them more directly and intimately than in the case of his providential care more generally. In other words, election is God working more closely in people like God gives us. He changes our hearts to respond to the gospel call. He says this, to, to work on his providential care more generally so that in regeneration, which is what it means to be saved, men and women are born again. God shines in their hearts 
and then implants new life in them, calling them by his grace. As Isaac Watts puts it in his hymn, high is the heavens, eternal God. The whole creation is thy charge, but saints are thy particular care. So what does this mean? One of the challenges in the way we describe Christianity is we know that God is a God of love. And what we do is we say God loves everyone, right? And we say this, God loves you, so believe in him. It sort of a, has become at some point an evangelistic cause. And that's not really the biblical way to evangelize because it gives people the impression that God has an equal love for everyone. Well, even we don't have that. Even we love certain people more than other people. I love all the kids in this church, but no one more than my own children. There are people in this room that I'm cool with, but then there are other people in this room that I'm closer with. I love my whole church, but there are people that I will only be Pastor Kurt to, and there are people that will know my challenges and struggles and walk with me in them. And as much as we're a church, it's impossible for everyone to participate in that. It's impossible. There are people in this room that there's nothing but love when I see them. And there are people in this room that I'm like, how can I help you? But then there are people in this room that come to help me. And that's just how it works in the terms of relationships. So even in our relationships, there are distinctions. Well, in God's relationship, there are distinctions. Those who are the elected, he chooses to be saved. He loves differently than the general population. It's a mystery. In fact, the next category and the last one we're going to read this morning is entitled Providence as Mysterious. This is what he says. Providence is mysterious because of the unparalleled nature of God's working and of the universe's physical forces and also because of the fact that due to the fall, God supports in being innumerable acts of evil and injustice, including acts of blasphemy, which produce untold miseries. Let me paraphrase what he's saying. Is that in God's providence, he allows evil to work itself out, even though it causes significant misery in the world. God uses that misery for a grander purpose than the misery itself. This is supremely apparent in bringing to pass the death of his spotless son by crucifixion by wicked men. To do, quoting Acts 4.28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is said to permit such evil, but it is a permission in which his will is active. Not the passive permission which gives discretion to the one permitted to do one of a variety of alternative actions. This is what he's saying, is that God is active in allowing evil to take place. There's no one acting in a way that God is not allowing. Even if we don't like or understand it for a purpose that's greater than sometimes he'll reveal to us. No one is doing any evil outside. So that goes from serial killers to child molesters to sex traffickers to all the things that are abhorrent, including the death of his own son, he will allow for a purpose. The mystery of providence can only be lessened by seeing more and more of God's purposes, both their extent and time, and space, and the thoughts and intents of men and women. For these reasons, we never get the full picture. 
So frustration and embarrassment are obvious. We do not yet know as we are known, and we have plans that will succeed only if the Lord wills. We have some idea of the shape of God's goodness in the face of the innumerable evils of life. For example, the greater good defense. God argues for a greater end in view, such as in the father's willing the death of his beloved son. Why evil? Why did God permit it? Is it not satisfactory to answer for the human race to express their freedom? The evils that befell the God-man are central, and so an, any answer should be Christocentric in character. With the death of God's son being central among evils, how are these other evils to be understood? So how do we process evil in the world with, and God allowing it to happen as a good God? How do we process that with the fact of the death of his own son? And it is the crucifixion that is supposed to shape how we understand evil in this life. Because let's just take, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was crying out, Father, take this cup from me. Not only did Jesus know that the Father could not answer that prayer, but had the Father answered that prayer, then where would we have hope? So there are evils that, that appear to be evil that God will allow to take place for a far greater purpose. So the death of his son gave us the, the songs that we were singing this morning and the salvation that we've experienced. Apart from that, we wouldn't have it. So the cross is supposed to reinterpret how we see evil, not to enjoy it, like it, or celebrate it, but to understand there's a purpose in it that I may not understand. I guarantee you, and I can't prove this biblically, but I guarantee that there was someone who believed in Jesus who was watching him get his back ripped open by the Romans and could not understand why would God allow this to happen to a prophet? There had to be someone. There were women there that belonged to Jesus, that stood in front of the cross with him and the apostle John. There's no way that Mary, his mom, is watching her son's back ripped open and wondering, why, God, are you allowing this to happen? Jesus is on the cross and he says, why have you forsaken me in front of people who are crying and they're wondering, what is God doing? It didn't make sense until Jesus came back from the dead. And then it was like, OK, let's get to work. The way we understand God's providence through evil, everything from losing my keys to arguing with people online to arguing with our spouse, to having kids that go astray, to having a miscarriage, to not being married and desiring it, to get into a car accident, to have a squirrel that will not go away. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Sister, there's a providential plan for that squirrel. God is shaping you. I don't know how. You might grow up and, and, and help somebody that has a nut, um, allergic to nuts, and save their life just based on your affinity and hatred for squirrels. Here's what he says at the end. Knowing what we do, it is knowing what we do, it is perhaps surprising that the New Testament does not give any clues on the justification of evil. Okay, this is important. The New Testament does not give any clues. They never enter Paul's reckoning, not in the way we may think we can benefit from. Instead, 
The welfare of the church is essential. He never alludes to the political or other policies of the Roman emperor, except as carrying out God's will, including providing for the church's civil peace by the magistrates, bearing the sword as agents of divine justice. The silence about the justification should make us hesitant to adopt a know-all attitude concerning these issues. In other words, the absence of God explaining why these things should happen should prevent us from needing to know all these things. That's what he's saying, because of God's providence. Now, that's going to play into what we hear here. Last week, we talked about the mercy, the, the mystery of mercy, and that it's God's choice. It's according to the purpose of God. Well, today, we're going to talk about the morality of mercy, the morality of it. Let's read Romans 9, beginning in verse 14 to verse 18, and I quote. The devil's always playing. Touch my iPad off. There it is again. You will not stop me. I, this has been happening for the last six months. I persevere. I'm just letting you know it. All right, here we go. Verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. The morality of mercy. Paul in verse 14 brings us right into that question by asking this, is there injustice with God? Is there injustice with God? In other words, if God is the one who's choosing who goes to heaven and hell, is there injustice there? Is that moral? Is that good? That's the question. I would say that this question is at the root of many, if not all, struggles with this doctrine. Every question that gets asked about salvation and who and why underneath has this gnawing reality. Is this good? Now, we better, we're taught better to say that God is not just. We're taught better than that. But underneath, this is what we're questioning especially if it's someone we know. Say there's someone you know that just didn't make it. And the reality is, not all of our loved ones are going to make it. We don't know. This is why this issue is different, because God has commanded us to participate in salvation in the experience of it by loving people and sharing the gospel with them so that they don't go to hell. And then we read passages that seem like, well, God is allowing, even choosing people to experience that eternally. So is there injustice in God? 
This does not seem moral. It does not seem good. And underneath all of it, these are what we're wrestling with when we're asking the questions, when, we, when it doesn't sit right with us. The real issue is, is there injustice in God? Now, mind you, we're reading the Bible, God's word, from God's perspective. God anticipates knowing everything that people are going to struggle with what he does or doesn't do. And so he allowed this question to be inserted covering this topic so that he could explain from his perspective what the answer is. Is there injustice with God? You see, the question presupposes that we need to evaluate God's character. But there's another reality. What this question reveals is not, is the character of God good, but that we fundamentally don't understand God's holiness and man's sinfulness. We don't fully get it. We're learning, we're growing, but we don't fully understand how holy God is and how sinful man is. You see, we hear about grace and love so much that we forget that they are in spite of humanity, not because of humanity. God's love and grace towards us is not because of us, but in spite of us. There is nothing about us that makes us Loving in the same way that Christ is to the Father. So his grace and mercy towards us is not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It is in spite of humanity. And we hear about grace and love so much, we think that sometimes that's pretty much all that God is. And we think that mankind, because God loves us, is more special than we really are. Now, obviously, those who belong to Christ are special in a certain sense. But as an evaluation of humanity, we are, to some degree, ignorant of the reality of man's sinfulness. We can minimize this reality of his holiness and our sinfulness. We can even minimize the greatest, most mysterious act of mercy, which is the cross. Don't make no mistake, Jesus was also elected, chosen to die on the cross. But we forget sometimes. We know it just in theory, right? We know it, but we tend to think of the cross as just our sins, him taking the punishment that we deserve. And being honest, on some level, like maybe not in a traditional court of law, but anyone can take the punishment that someone else deserves on some level. So Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve is fundamentally true, but the reality is, is Jesus is satisfying the wrath of God. He's not just taking the punishment. There is a wrath of God that God is angry towards humanity for our sinfulness and our persistent sinfulness. Jesus came to take the wrath of God to satisfy the wrath of God. They call it expiation theologically. He satisfies the wrath of God. It means God who is angry at sin and people who commit it are now no longer angry at people who believe in Jesus because he took his wrath out on Jesus. You see, it's good to talk about God's love, but it comes at a cost. 
So we focus on God's love so much that we think they're almost like God is like Santa or something, just waiting for us to sit on his lap. Remember in Revelation 1, when, G, when John saw Jesus in the eternal state, he dropped on the floor because he couldn't stand in front of him. And this is the apostle who claimed in his gospel that I'm the one that Jesus loves. He couldn't even recognize one of his best friends and had to be lifted up by Jesus just to be able to stand face to face with him. See, that's also who God is. That God that has flames and the sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes and he's, he's, he's coming. He came the first time humble. He came to save. When he comes back, he's taking those who are saved and he's coming to judge. And when he does, there is no my bad then. We must never forget who we are in terms of humanity. Genesis 6 says this. Genesis 6, 5. This is the first time you really see this. Even when when Cain killed Abel, you don't really get the reality of sin and how it affects people. I mean, you get it, but that's the first murder. The fact that it's between two brothers, right? So you don't get it. I mean, some of us have thought, man, my brother's getting on my nerves, man. I'm getting ready. Right? So, but in Genesis 6, here's where God really addresses humanity. And he says this in verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Listen to that description. Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but wicked, evil all the time. This is who we are to God apart from Jesus Christ. Every inclination. Listen, God wiped out the earth and kept eight people around. Those eight people carried the same wicked inclination with them. The same inclination. And all that, all that drowning people and all that killing and all that wasn't even the full wrath of God because eight people were spared along with some other animals. There were eight people's sins who were not held accountable for. So whatever, all that carnage, we, we, we see a lot of movies with this great CGI and you see these 2012 and this 500 foot uh, 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 um, tidal wave coming to just destroy all that stuff, killing all those people, that wasn't even the full wrath of God. So whatever Jesus experienced on those six hours on the cross was worse than all the people and all that carnage that died in Noah's ark. This is every inclination. Let's go back to Romans. Romans 3. Listen to what he says. Romans 3, beginning of verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers, vipers venom is under their lips. There is no one. He didn't say there is almost no one because I did like Noah, Abraham, David, Joseph, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel. He said there is no one 
So those people that found favor with God didn't find favor with God because of who they were. They found favor with God because of who he is. He said there is no one who seeks after God. There's no one who is righteous. This isn't paraphrasing. He is describing the reality of humanity. This is the reason why Jesus came, because there's no one who would obey. Listen, there's two kinds. Of, it's, it's the obedience and then the motive, right? So we often forget about Jesus' motive. Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father. My will is to do the will of the one who sent me. In our best days, we may think like that. I'm talking about as believers. My will is to, like, man, get some stuff done, relax, take a nap after I do this, go home, clean up the office. My will isn't to do, I'm not sitting around like, oh, man, I, everything I do, this left turn is to do the will of the Father. Man, I'm out here driving. I'm not even thinking about what God's thinking about. I'm just hoping he doesn't let me get in a car accident. And you laughing because you too. There is no one. This is humanity. From God's perspective. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, listen to his description of people in the end times, which I think we are presently in. I think this is a description of what I see right now clearly. Not that it, was, not that it just started, but man, is it clear. He says this, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. These are people that are all over the place. And I'm not even going to pretend like there might not even be some in this room. This is humanity. Outside of Jesus and God, choose. you think this list of people are choosing and looking for God? That people just on their own want to just do the will of God? No, people, if they're looking for God, they want something from God. In the golden calf narrative, one of my... One, one of the most amazing things in Exodus 32 when they make this golden calf. Here's what they say to Aaron, right? This is in the first two verses. And when you get a chance, don't do it right now. Exodus 32. Just read the first four verses and you'll see this clear. They say this to Aaron. Where is Moses? I'm paraphrasing, right? This is a curt translation. They say, where is Moses? This dude has been gone for a minute. And here's what they say. Make us gods that will go out before us, will worship. Now, you have to understand what that means. The idea of going out before is what God, Yahweh, was described as. He went out before them in a pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the day leading them. God was going out before them. He was defending them, protecting them. So here's what they said. Make us gods that will protect us and then we'll worship them. You see, so the idolatry fundamentally was of themselves. I'm not going to believe in nothing that's not going to do nothing for me. I mean, think about even like, even like fear of man or you idolize someone's perspective. Okay, well, what is that? What are you really idolizing? What do you want from them? Attention. Why? To make you feel it. 
because you really, we really idolize ourselves. The, the primary idol is us. This is why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. He, you, only Oprah tells you you need to love yourself more. <laughs> the Bible never tells us that because by default, God knows that's what we do. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm thirsty, even if I do something crazy, I'm, I enjoy it. This is a sobering reality from God's perspective. And see, this isn't the way we look at sin. We, we tend to look at sin the way we look at crime. Like it's bad and stuff like that, but we got to kind of live with it. It is what it is. That's kind of how we look at crime. Like you hear something, man, it's crazy. And we just keep moving. You see, we can't look at sin the same way God does because some of us have benefited from the pleasure of those sins. There are sins that we've benefited from, all of us. Look, sin and the draw to commit sin isn't going against our will because it's painful and hurtful. It's because it's pleasurable. It feels good, even if momentarily. So it's hard for us to see sin because we can kind of rationalize it. Rationale it. Like, like, like God, prime example. God doesn't look at people having sex outside of marriage and think, you know what, though? They do love each other, though. They plan to get married. I mean, they're, 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 they love each other. Though. Let's say, God doesn't see the rationale of sin. He only sees the rebellion of it. So God can, we can see the rationale. It makes sense to us. I can understand someone who takes vengeance on somebody else because you hurt them. I get it. Think about this. A lot of the movies that we like, we love justice, but sometimes our justice is really just vengeance. We watch these movies like Taken, where the dude comes to get his daughter, and he kills 7, 12, 15 people, and I feel like, yeah, kill all of them just because they took his daughter. And y'all do the same thing. I ain't the only ungodly one in here when you watch them things. Y'all, you, you eat it up. If there's a movie where someone hurt a kid, I'm like, kill him. And if there's a torture scene, the last thing I'm thinking is, man, I hope he gets saved. And I'm like, man, I hope hell has a nice hotel room for him when he gets down there. We think in terms of that stuff, but you know what that is? That's really vengeance. Jesus said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But we're drawn into it because we can rationale sin. God doesn't rationale sin. It's rebellion, not rationale, but he'll use it to accomplish a purpose. You see, we've had to learn from God to hate sin. We've had to learn from him, oh, this is actually evil. Okay, so even though this feels good to you, it's evil and I shouldn't do it because there are consequences for it. Now, mind you, everyone hates the consequences of sin. Listen, I'm from the street. I'm from the street. We had no problem getting high, having sex with girls, shooting at other people. But none of us wanted to get them girls pregnant. None of us wanted an STD. None of us wanted to get arrested and do life in prison. None of us wanted to get shot back. Like, everybody hates the consequences of sin. But the pleasure of it, man, God has to teach us and is teaching us these things. That's why we're ill-equipped to evaluate if God is actually just. Because we can't separate that we, to some degree, will rationale sin because we are sinful people. 
But to God, it's always rebellion. So when we're evaluating the morality of mercy, we have to remember that it's not God's character that we're evaluating. We're evaluating our sinfulness and how seriously we see it. And often we have a lower view of our sinfulness in comparison to God because we emphasize God's love and grace so much, we forget that that's in opposition. That's, that's opposite in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. So Paul says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. Listen to this. Look, watch it. Listen to the justification. Here's the justification that Paul gives that God is not unjust. Listen to the justification right here. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Right? So here, look, when he answers the question, absolutely not. What's his next statement? God, God's word. He says God's word. God said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. The, justica- the justification for God not being unjust is himself. Paul doesn't appeal to how we understand the things, and God is not appealing to that. He's not appealing to how we process him. He's appealing to who he is. So he says, no, God's word is the reason why. And then he goes a step further. He goes a step further in verse 16. Listen to this. So then, he makes this very clear. This is, now remember, God is speaking on behalf of Paul. Understanding that people are going to question if he's just because he will allow some people to experience his wrath in eternity. Here's what he says in verse 16. So then it does not depend on human will or effort. But on God who shows mercy. Okay, let's read between the lines. It does not depend on human will or effort. Let's break that down. Human will. So, so it doesn't depend on human will. Salvation, mercy, the understanding of mercy, what God does. It doesn't depend on human will. What is the human will? It's a, a, a wishes to have. It's, it's desires. It's wants. This is what the will is. I want this. I desire this. I wish this would happen. He says it doesn't depend on human will. Which, let me paraphrase that. It doesn't depend on human approval. It doesn't depend on human wants, desires, or wishes. It doesn't depend on human approval, and it doesn't depend on human input. This is what he's saying. It doesn't depend on that. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to have a problem with it, but this is the reality. We're not talking about how you feel about that right now. We're just talking about what God says about it. He says it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our input. Listen, God made humanity. In his authority, God, you know, the only time that God submitted to humanity was Jesus. That was the only time that God submitted to human authority. And even then, we know that he was doing it. It was still God's authority. But Jesus allowed himself to be raised by a sinful mom and dad. Don't get it twisted. Just because Mary was a virgin and then he chose Mary, it wasn't like Mary wasn't sinful. She, was still, she still came from Adam. All who come from Adam are cursed until they become in Christ. The only time Jesus submitted to man's authority 
was in his earthly life and then most supremely on the cross. That's where you see Jesus submitting to the authority of man, but really it was the authority of God. But on one level, it was the authority of man. In John 19, 11, my favorite verse that, that, meant, that talks about God's sovereignty. It doesn't have to be yours, it's mine. John 19, 11, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says, he's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? And this, and this, I, I'm visual, right? Y'all, y'all probably don't know that. I imagine Jesus not even making eye contact with him. as He's like, answer me, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is just like not even looking at him. And then he says in John 19, 11, don't you know I have the power to either crucify you or let you go? And then I imagine Jesus looking down and being like, you would have no authority over me if it were not given you from above. Mic drop. (laughs) Standing in the face of the crucifixion, Jesus says, fam, you are not in charge here. (laughs) You're in charge to them, but you're not in charge to me. I wouldn't even be here if the father didn't allow it to happen. That's the only time you see Jesus submitted to man's authority. Apart from that, when it comes to who should be saved and how it should play out, God says it doesn't depend on human will. God doesn't need our approval, our input. He just needs our faith. And by need, I don't mean need. I mean he calls us to have faith. Human will could not save humanity. Let's look at effort. Effort is basically anything we say or do, works, things that we can say or do. And he says it doesn't depend on human effort. There's nothing you can say or do. This is just God's word. This is why even though Paul earlier in Romans 9 wishes that he could replace himself with the Jews if they would be saved. It can't, Paul could never because it would be his will and his effort. I mean, even someone that's as godly as Paul appeared to be, he lacks the credentials to be able to satisfy the wrath of God. See, it's not just taking someone's punishment. It's satisfying the wrath of God. Can you appease God's anger towards you? Okay, if you can, here's what you have to do. You have to be perfect. No sin. And this is just a sidebar. Please, people should stop. Stop saying, well, I'm not perfect. We know. <laughs> I don't know why people say that. Well, I'm only, I'm only human. We know. No one thought you were perfect, fam. That's just a pet peeve of mine. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. Paul can't do it because he lacks the credentials. We lack the credentials. Sure, I can take the punishment for my son. I could, if the police showed up and my son did some crime, I could lie and say I did it. And then they take me and go through a trial and throw me in prison. So technically, I could take his punishment. But I can't satisfy the wrath of God for him. I can't satisfy the wrath of God for any. It's not just taking someone's punishment. It's satisfying the wrath of God. Only Jesus can do that. So unless you're with Jesus, then the wrath of God is going to be dissatisfied with you. Amen. 
You know, there are times in the Christian life where God shows the vast difference between the distance between us and him. We saw that in the gospel of the transfiguration. That was a clear moment where they were just like, I mean, they saw Jesus do a lot of miracles. But Peter, James, and John at that transfiguration saw Jesus just glow and then saw Moses and Elijah. Which it's amazing that there are no pictures of Moses and Elijah, but they knew exactly who they were. It wasn't like they was looking at photos. Oh, look, that looks just like the dude. There's no pictures. There's no artwork of them. But he knew who they were. That's a whole different ballgame that the glory of God is revealing. But I can't talk about that today. We are vastly different from God. There's a, a great distance. Now, it's God who came near. We didn't get bigger. It's God who got closer. We are not just different from God ontologically. And by that, I mean like in terms of the metaphysical nature of God and his omnipresence and him being everywhere. Right. We're not ontologically just different from God. We're epistemologically different, which means wisdom. So we're not just different from God in the fact that he's spirit and he's everywhere and we're human beings. We're also different from God in our wisdom and how we think about and what we understand about the world. We are vastly different from who God is. Like, let me ask this question. Where, where do we get our understanding of mercy from? Where do you understand grace from? Like, who's the standard of measurement for understanding what's just and what's not just? Where did you get that from? How did you learn it? Would we even know what mercy is if God didn't demonstrate it for us? Human effort cannot save humanity. Human wisdom cannot save humanity because we get our wisdom from God. We get it from him. How do you tell someone who knows everything something he doesn't know. In verse 17 and 18, God shows us from his perspective the purpose of mystery, the mystery and morality of mercy by way of election. Here's what he says in verse 17. For the scripture tells Pharaoh I've raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And here is where the issue of the morality of mercy comes into play. Is God's motive for election just? Is he good to harden someone like Pharaoh's heart? Is that fair? God put it in his word, and he answers it partly in here and through the rest of the chapter. But we have to understand the question is not based on 
an objective truth because God is truth. We think we're evaluating the character of God, but we're evaluating the wisdom of man. There is no character in man without God. As we saw about Ishmael, God says, I'm going to bless him and make him 12 tribal, which would, he had 12 sons, and said he's going to be a nation. And those people, there were plenty of people that had families, loved their children, did all this stuff. They had, probably had good lives in this life, but they weren't a part of the promise. Is it fair? The question is not based on the character of God, but on our understanding of our own selves. Because we're, we're thinking, man, I wouldn't do that. But who are you? Who am I? I've gotten pleasure from sin. I am disqualified from determining who, who gets to make it an eternity in light of sin because I'm guilty of it. Here's the motive for why God does what he does. Here's the motive of the mystery of and the morality of mercy. He says this, I may display my power in you that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. God is saying that it's about my name being proclaimed in the earth. And the reason why, and the, and the greatest way to accomplish that on one level is to raise up this nation who is feared by everyone, who has everything anyone could want. And then let me show you how much they're nothing to me. You know, and, and the truth of this was when the Israelites were moving into the land of Canaan and they came across where Rahab was, <laughs> Rahab, one of the first things she said, I'm paraphrasing, this is the Kurt translation. Rahab was like, hey, we heard how your God gets down. We heard what happened to the Egyptians. And these people may be playing around, but I'm not. Could you spare me and my family? So they said, all right, we'll put this scarf in your window, and when we come back, we'll let you go. And then Rahab becomes a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. God raised up Egypt to demonstrate his power. It was for his glory. These are the rules. What's interesting is, this is funny, like we accept this on many other levels. If you play sports, you play basketball or football, you accept this on any level. Can you imagine if LeBron James and them were like, hey, listen, I'm kind of getting tired of people playing defense on me, man. I think this is unjust. We need to change the rules. Or football players like, listen, hey, hey, hold on, man. I don't think I should be tackled. Like this rule, I, I don't like this. This is unjust. I should be able to walk to the end zone untouched every time I touch the ball. That doesn't even happen when you put it on 99 and John Madden. Some of y'all know. Some of y'all cheat like that. God's got a couple players at 99 or 100 and you can't win. Can't beat them. We accept the rules. We accept the fact that 
I can't come in and change this. I got to submit to these rules. So in order for me to be a good basketball player, I got to learn how to get past the man in front of me and shoot and not have it blocked to score. In order for me to be good at football, I got to dodge tackles or know how to, I got to pass, know how to catch. I got to know how to block. I cannot come into the NFL and demand that the fundamental rules that make the game the game need to change because I don't like them. I don't want to be tackled, okay? Then don't play football. I don't want to get my shot blocked, then don't play basketball. You can't come in and change the rules, some rules maybe, but the fundamental aspect of the game becomes a different game if you say no more tackling in football. Who's going to watch that? I'm not. Who's going to watch the NBA playoffs? I'm not. Because you've changed the game. These rules are there for a reason. Listen, God doesn't just decide the rules. He is the rule. And you can't look at salvation and say, I don't like these rules. You know what you might be saying then without knowing it is I don't like you, God. God doesn't make the rules. He is the rule. There's just no way around it. And so the question isn't, is God good? The question is, do we accept the goodness of God and how it presents itself? And for some people, that's going to be a no. And you'll deal with that on your own terms with the Lord. But for many of us, the answer has to be yes. It doesn't mean we'll like everything. Listen, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is, to me, we need to do a series on just that one day. That is one of the most overlooked passages in all of Scripture. There is a lot going on in that scene. I mean, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that an angel comes to comfort Jesus And then after that, he says he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became drops of blood. I don't know what that angel said. (laughs) But it didn't work. Whatever encouragement he was sent to give Jesus in that moment, I don't think it worked. Now, I can't prove it because I don't know what he said. But I doubt he came and said, hey, the father wants you to pray harder and have your sweat turn to drops of blood. He probably came to encourage him about the task he was about to experience. And Jesus was like, like he's telling Job's friend, not now, fam. (laughs) Or the way we would say, man, I ain't trying to hear all that. Jesus prayed even more. We're going to get to that scene one day. but, But the reality is, is that it doesn't mean we have to like it. It doesn't make it true if we like it. It doesn't make it true if we submit to it. It's just better for us if we do because it's true. The morality of mercy. Is God just? Yeah. Why? Because he's God. Let's pray. Father, before I you know this. They don't know this. But before I, before I was preaching, I prayed to you that you would help guide me because I know that these types of conversations, I don't always know the best tone to communicate this in. You've created me to be a passionate speaker, and, and maybe there are times my tone doesn't reflect what is necessary. So I pray that that's not a distraction for people, but the truth of your word is the reality. I don't always know the best way to communicate the reality, especially in tough situations. 
but it's not something we can decide to believe. We don't cherry pick what we like about you and what we don't. We don't cherry pick what we're going to believe and submit to. At least we're not supposed to. Father, you do not see the rationale of sin like we do. You don't care if two people are in love and so they're having sex. It doesn't matter to you. You care that they're disobeying your moral law. You care that even though you've sent your son to die on the cross for people, even people who profess to believe in him will submit to wickedness. Father, we're not equipped, even though we'd like to believe that we are, even though we'd like to imagine that we would do things differently and that somehow it would turn out differently, for we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. I pray, Father, as we move forward, as you address this head on in the next message, the next passage that we do, you will address this head on where I ended today. And I pray that you would give faith where necessary. You would help clarify. And at the end of the day, there may or may not be good answers for this. But you don't provide that many. You do tell us, though, that this is truth. This is reality. And we still live in light of this truth and reality. And we may not always like it, but it doesn't make it untrue or unjust because we don't. So I pray, Father, that you would protect and preserve the faith of your sons and daughters who are in this room, who are watching on the screen. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.